Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Bob Thurston on the show, and we'll be talking about his provocative new book, Lynching, American Mob Murder in Global Perspective. The standard view of lynching in the United States, the one that I was taught and thought I knew, is that lynching was a form of social control, that Whites attempted to control and dominate and suppress black populations by the systematic application of terror and violence. Again, this is something that, at least I thought, everybody knew. According to Bob Thurston, who has now studied the topic in detail, this really isn't quite right. Of course, lynching was horrible, and most of it was white on black. But if you look at the data very carefully, there are some peculiarities that are not consistent with the social control or systematic social control thesis. It varied widely over space. There were some places where lynching never happened at all and some places where it was relatively common. And even where it was relatively common, it was, I think we could say, quite infrequent and episodic. There don't seem to have been campaigns or anything like that of lynching. There are also other things. Not all lynchings were white on black. There were white on white lynchings, and there were even black on black lynchings. And of course, out west, there was a lot of lynching involved in things like cattle rustling. And then, of course, we have variation over time. The incidence of lynching increased, as Bob points out, from 1882 to 1892, but then it falls off. Almost everywhere it falls off, relatively quickly, meaning over several decades. Of course, there are spikes at certain moments, but the general trend is down. And what Bob asks is whether the social control thesis is consistent with these data. And uh, he comes to the conclusion that they really aren't, that lynching is a much more complicated phenomenon, that race was certainly a very important factor in it, but it doesn't really explain all the things that you find in the evidence. Uh, This book is a revision of what we know about or thought about lynching. It's an important book. It's one that should be read, and I hope that you have the chance to read it. I really enjoyed talking to Bob today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Bob. Hi, Marshall. How are you doing? I'm doing very well today. How are you? Good. Good. I should tell our listeners that today we're talking to Bob Thurston, who's written a very interesting and provocative book called Lynching, American Mob Murder in Global Perspective. I have read this book, and it is tremendously eye-opening, as I like to say about eye-opening books. I don't have another metaphor for that. Uh, It really taught me a lot. It enabled me to look at something that I thought I understood in a new way, and I came to understand that I did not really understand it at all. I'm sorry I said understand so many times in those sentences, but I think you get what I mean. Uh, This book will teach you something, uh, and it will challenge many of your preconceptions, and that, I think, is part of the duty of a historian, and I think initially we should congratulate Bob on doing this. Not all of us do that. I know that in my own books I don't say a lot of, I guess, challenging things like this, but this one speaks to 
hot topics in American political discourse right now. So it's an actual book, as people might say. So I encourage you to go out and look at it. Bob, why don't we begin the interview by asking you to say a few words about yourself. Well, I, I was born in Washington, D.C., and, and grew up on a street with the prosaic name Aspen Street. But on that suburban street, there were families from Germany, uh, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and so on. There were naval captains and CIA people. And so there was a lot going on that I could sense in some way, even as a child. And I, I think I kind of got hooked on on trying to look deeper for the story behind events, even at that point. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out that I wanted to be a historian. Um, the Vietnam War was a big push in that direction because I wanted to try to figure out really why we, the Americans, were in Vietnam. And that pointed to communism, obviously, and that pointed back to Russia and the Russian Revolution. So by the late 60s, early 70s, I was very much caught up in studying Russia and the Soviet Union. And uh, that's that's more or less how it started. Then I went on from there to uh, to to become interested in, in mass persecution. The second book I wrote was on Soviet terror, life and terror in Stalin's Russia. And uh, at that, at, just before that book was published, the Soviet Union collapsed, and that took away some of the oh, allure and mystery <laughs> of that whole subject. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in cowboy capitalism as it develops in Russia, but not that much. So then I decided for... For other reasons as well, I think might be might be better, more profound. I decided to investigate other mass persecutions, and I went on to write about the witch hunts in Europe, because I did think there were many uh, similarities between those witch hunts and and the Soviet terror. And then to write about lynching seemed like a kind of natural progression after that. Uh, again, mass persecution. Uh, and one that, well, like the other two, which hunts in the Soviet terror, seemed to me to to have a very sharp rise and equally sharp fall, uh, to be really erratic by place, and, and to have evoked a lot of um, opposition from within society, opposition from uh, important groups in society. And, uh, and so I followed that path. I, I want to say that I... Marshall, I think I've now given up studying mass persecution forever. <laughs> I'm trying to go on to something a little more pleasant. But that's, that's how I wound up with a study of lynching. I see. Well, Bob, you've already mentioned this, that is, why you wrote this book, but why don't you tell us in more detail how you came to write this book? And I'm particularly interested in the way in which you decided to take on really a very controversial topic. I mean, I suppose it is the case, I know it is the case, because I'm a Russian historian myself, that Stalin's purges uh, and mass persecution there is a hot topic. Um, but uh, the Russians are in Russia, and you're uh, in Ohio. Uh, however, lynching is a actual topic today in the United States, and this is something that is uh, bound to be controversial, particularly when one... Um, demonstrates, I think, a kind of revisionist thesis, as you do, which we'll talk about later in the interview. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Okay. Well, going back to my 
my childhood again. I grew up, <laughs> sorry to do that, but, but I think it is, it is important. Uh, I grew up, as I, as I mentioned, in suburban Maryland, and uh, the, the, the area uh, there, Chevy Chase, in fact, all of, of suburban Maryland, northern Virginia, was segregated, uh, not necessarily by law. Maryland, of course, was a border state in the Civil War that had slavery but did not secede from the Union. And uh, But I, I remember very clearly all kinds of public facilities in Maryland that were absolutely segregated. And so I think that had always been uh, in the back of my mind somewhere that, that having grown up in that kind of atmosphere, I did want to investigate it in, in some more specific sense, how that came to be. And then I was a, a teenager during the civil rights marches and so on and watched all the kind of terrible uh, things that happen on television, uh, police dogs attacking African-American marchers and uh, people being knocked down by fire hoses simply because they wanted the right to vote, that kind of thing. Uh, on, on the other hand, as I looked at, at as I became somehow, on a, I guess just because of that general background, more interested in lynching and thinking that, well, here's a, another mass persecution, and it is at, it is at home. It did occur at home. So uh, it, in a way, I, I, again, after having written about Soviet terror and the witch hunts, I, I wanted to do something more at home, but I, but I also thought at the same time it's really important to try to set the events of lynching into a much broader and, and global context because I was already aware that lynching had occurred in Africa, various places, in India, in Guatemala, for example. Uh, and so uh, it, it has occurred to me, frankly, that a lot of American historians don't know very much or don't seem to care very much about events outside of the United States. Of course, we have a lot of talk now about the Atlantic world or the mm -hmm. Pacific Rim or something like that. But in terms of direct comparisons, Americanists often seem kind of weak. So... Uh, and I thought, not, not knowing much about all this when I started, uh, why not try to dig deeper into uh, events that have happened in Africa? And they, one of the primary reasons for that was that, uh, of course, race is almost always cited as the key factor in American lynching. And I don't want to discount that factor at all, but I did did feel pretty early in the research that uh, race was one factor, but that also race is, is by no means always about race. Race, as, as many others have said, here I'm not, I'm not being original, race is also very often a question of class. You have to uh, examine race and class together, I think. Uh, and, and so, by the way, that's one of the things that, that changed pretty steadily in the South uh, after the 1870s, and that is that some African Americans were able to rise in the social structure uh, within a segregated world, of course, but they, they wound up uh, encountering, I, I think, consistently much different treatment from white people than, let's say, illiterate black field hands did. So, uh, but I, I also... I I must say, Marshall, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed, like many Americans may be, with questions of race. Why are there so many uh, young black men in jail? Why is, it, why is the gap between uh, wealth per white household 
uh, widening the gap between that uh, per capita household amount among whites and the same figures among black families, why is that widening? Uh, Is the Tea Party really uh, largely about race, that kind of thing? As as you indicated, race is is really a hot topic today. Uh, And I think we we need to, to step back from it a little bit and, and not just present the American South as, a, as an unmitigated story of horror, uh, bitter fruit, the Billie Holiday song, the black man hanging from the, uh, the tree and so on, um, and, and that kind of thing. Strange fruit, isn't it called? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, and, and so I, I think it was also, I thought it was very important, uh, partly because I did not grow up among evil white people. I didn't think they were evil. They, they accepted many things as, as natural and, and right, in particular segregation. Although my, my family was not, I really can think I can say my family was not racist. Anyway, uh, for those personal reasons, and also because race is such a, uh, an important topic in academia today, uh, do we have Basically, do we have enough black people uh, on the campus? Do we have enough African-American professors? Do we have enough African-American students? Uh, and, and race is, is, a, is a daily topic in the newspapers and the media. So uh, for whatever good or bad or perverse reasons, I, I, f- I felt a need to go back over this ground. And it struck me pretty quickly, looking at the existing literature, that lynching was extremely erratic. Again, uh, for example, the the rate of lynching per black person was twice as high in Mississippi as it was in South Carolina, even though both states were uh, largely rural, uh, had majority black populations. Those are the two states that that had more black people than white people from 1880 to 1940, and both were run by southern racists. And the, the, the rate of lynching was much, much higher in Georgia than in Virginia. So there were these great differences within the South, even though the Jim Crow system was well developed by the 1890s or early 1900s at the latest. Mm -hmm. I guess it's been a long combination of scholarly interests and and personal interests and and really trying to grapple with what race means in America today that, that drove me, I think, compulsively to write this book. Well, I want to congratulate you for doing it. I will speak uh, personally about this for a second. I I think that uh, the family I grew up in was racist. Uh, They Mm -hmm. used uh, the N-word in free-flowing speech without any hesitancy, um, which uh, wasn't very pleasant for me. Uh, Well, at least when I reached that kind of political maturity. But the other thing I realized recently is that I'm just ashamed of this legacy and its persistence. I mean, literally ashamed. I just don't... I think about it every day. I think we all do. I think it's America's great problem. We, yeah. It's just it, all of our political discourse is embedded in it. We can't get away from it. It's like, you know, the French and equality. <laughs> they always think about equality all the time, and yeah. we always think about race. And, and you know, quite honestly, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fatigued by it. I'm, I'm literally tired of it. I, I, yeah. It's just like I, I don't know what else I can do. It's and these statistics about uh, young black males in, in. In, in jail are just truly shocking for anyone who doesn't know them. You should look them up because they are just yeah. amazing. Yeah. They're amazing and horrifying. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I congratulate you. I really do because this is, it is our, it is our great struggle. I think 
to try yes, to deal I, with this. Yes, I, I, I think so. And, and I, I try to remain aware of the, the differences in meaning to me when, when I talk about lynching and, and the meaning for mm-hmm. African Americans. And I'm, I'm well aware and I've been made aware to my face a number of times by black people that lynching is terribly, terribly symbolic to mm-hmm. them. And, and that race just does not have the same meaning mm-hmm. to me that it does to them. I'm, I don't think I've ever been discriminated against on any basis except possibly because I'm quite tall. <laughs> I am too, and I say the same thing. Yeah, but, but hey, that's that's the extent of it. You know, I have trouble sitting in coach airplane seats, but uh, but I've never felt the sting of discrimination. No, so I, I am aware that that there are vast differences on a personal level, uh, and I'm also aware that while many many white people in this country. In, in my view, don't necessarily have a great sense of community with other white people. I mean, there may be Irish Americans or Italian Americans or whatever. I'm kind of a generic American, or wasp, <laughs> wasp, if you will, you know. But, but I, I, I'm not a member of a country club, and so. On. But but among African Americans, there is, of course, often a, a tight sense of community, mm-hmm. which which as an outsider, I think, is often redefined, recalculated, rethought by them, but it, but it's always a, a topic that's in the air. What is it to be black and American, as, as many writers have, have said for yeah. a long time? Uh, and, and, and so I, I try to keep that in mind. Nonetheless, I think it's terribly important for all of us, white, black, and, and by the way, of course, it's not just a white and black society, if it ever was. There are oh, yeah. people from Asia, there are people from Latin America, there are, there are all, all kinds of black people who speak Spanish as their native language. Mm-hmm. So I, I think to, I think it's a, a bit of a shame now to make the, the white-black antagonism that, that did occur in the American South into the central story of race relations in the United States. Yeah. And I think it has been terribly important to to not only point out these great uh, differences by region, but also the the differences over time uh, as things went on. Just just to throw out a couple of figures here that are not mine originally. Uh, in 1892, using the standard definition of lynching and the standard figures that are in most books. 230 people were lynched in the United States, of whom 161 were blacks. Uh, But by 1901, uh, those figures were uh, cut in half, at least in terms of the total. Uh, Or, uh, sorry, by by 1900, 115 uh, people lynched, half of the 1892 total. Mm -hmm. And by 1913, 52 people lynched altogether, one quarter of the 1892 total. Now, it's true that the number of African-Americans lynched went down more slowly, but by 1921, we see, 1929, for example, we see only seven lynched. That's seven too many. Mm-hmm. But we do have to deal with the, uh, the fact, I think, that uh, lynching declined very rapidly in this mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. after 1892. And so 
if anybody wants to use it as a symbol of anything, and it, it's a powerful symbol, we do have to take the, the rapid decline of lynching into careful consideration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have to take the many white people who opposed it occasionally even to the extent of, of uh, firing on other white people or even um, giving their own lives to try to stop a, a mob of other white people from killing a black prisoner. So mm-hmm. I think those stories need a little bit more publicity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Before we get into the actual, uh, what might be called the empirics of lynching, which you do a great job on and are very eye-opening again, uh, I want to talk about uh, very briefly what might be called the received view and this is what I thought I knew, and that is that lynching was a system of social control. It yeah. was a, a kind of organized way in which whites knew that they could control uh, newly freed um, black populations. Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that right? Yes, that is, that's a phrase, social control, that's repeated in, in book and article after, after article. Uh, I, I tried to examine again, the theory behind social control, what does that mean exactly? And I, I don't think it's a particularly useful concept. And by the way, that, that idea of using terror, if you will, uh, to control a population, that's, of course, been in the, in the Soviet, oh, yeah. from the Soviet case and also in the literature on the witch hunts, that over and over again the witch hunts were a way of controlling peasants, or uppity women, or dissidents of, of some kind. And I think, by the way, one, one reason that I, I went on to write about lynching after the witch hunts is, in, in my view, that notion has pretty much dropped out of discussions about the witch hunts. And incidentally, there's no proof, there's no direct proof in any of these three mass persecutions that, that any, anybody in authority ever said, okay, Let's intimidate women, for example, by accusing them of witchcraft and executing them. There were plenty of ways to intimidate women without going through all the time and trouble and expense of a witchcraft trial. Mm-hmm. You're never going to find anybody, I'm, I'm confident of this, who said, uh, we, the white people, are going to keep, and I wiggle my fingers and quote, we, the whites, are going to keep the niggers down by mm-hmm. lynching some of them. And nor do you find that uh, as the direct impetus for a lynching. In, in all the case studies, there is something else that triggers a lynching, and it's very often some level of violence between black people and white people. Mm-hmm. And the whites react. They, they always consider the black person to have been guilty, uh, even if it was clearly a case of self-defense. That's, that's the one thing that white people... In some areas, in some cases, places in the South would not tolerate, and and they reacted to uh, any violence from any source. For example, a dispute might erupt over how much cotton a black field hand had actually picked in a day. People were paid by the weight of the cotton they picked. Uh, Out of that might uh, ensue an argument. Out of that might ensue some violence, and uh, especially if a white person was injured, then a lynching could follow. Mm-hmm. So I think you have to look at the very uh, specific particulars of each case, and I, I, I do not find that uh, lynching it, it was a, a system. It's not systematic. An electrical system works in a predictable way. A sewer system works in a predictable way. Uh, if, if it 
if the electricity goes off, you know something has gone wrong with mm-hmm. the system. With lynching, there's no predictability about it, except mm-hmm. that, uh, for what I mentioned before, if, if there's violence between black people and white people, that could certainly lead to a lynching, although even that wasn't guaranteed. So it's just not systematic, and if it's not systematic, it can't be called a system of social control. Mm-hmm. Jim Crow was an attempt at social and racial control. That's enshrined in law, uh, although it was tested, challenged, and I think even broken every day in many parts of the South. But that's that's where the attempt at producing a system occurred. And and when that happened, uh, the, the rules were not necessarily totally clear, but it, it did... It, it, it did serve as a way to to alert blacks and to, to force them into a lower political place. But at the same time, I think we, we, we have to pay a good deal of attention to other factors in African-American life in the South, that their property ownership expanded a lot. So that's an expansion of their place. Their level of education went up a lot after the 1870s and 80s. That's an expansion of their place. Uh, and, of course, millions of them migrated from the south to the north, so they literally changed places. Mm-hmm. So, in talking about the place of African Americans in the south, we have to be very careful, and we have to look at this whole other set of factors, which lynching didn't control at all. Mm-hmm. If anything, lynching obviously uh, provoked black people to move from the south to the north, or sometimes within the south, because they knew, uh, incidentally, that some southern areas were quite a bit safer for them than others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't find the theory of social control uh, very very useful in most cases. I mean, we have social control in this country. You, If you don't pay your taxes, you, you will be fined, or you'll <laughs> go to jail if the feds ever catch up with you. Uh, toilet training is a form of social control. Uh, really, there, there, there are many, many mm-hmm. forms of it, and I think we have to be extremely careful in talking about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Um, so before we go on, actually, to discuss uh, the, the various theses of the book, we've already mentioned them, I, I want to talk a little bit about the empirics, again, of, okay. of lynching, because it's actually kind of a complicated thing. I mean, we think we know what lynching is, right. but actually it turns out the definition is very amorphous, yes. and also the data themselves are, well, they need to be treated carefully. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about what lynching is and what data we have about it? Sure. The, the standard de- working definition, as I call it, of lynching is that uh, there has to be a homicide. In the older definitions, it just meant beating or something like that or any mob attack. But, but for many decades now or more than 100 years, the standard definition has been an illegal homicide <clears throat> carried out by a group that is acting on the basis or at least the pretext of service to publicly held values. And those could include racism, of course. Uh, so it can't, it can't be a private act. It can't be, oh, you and three of your neighbors are angry because uh, some other neighbor has allowed his dog to come and defecate on your lawn. Mm-hmm. And you kill, you and this group kill that neighbor. That's that's a private act, but it's also in a big gray area because if this if 
this other neighbor has been allowing his dog to mess on everybody's lawn around town, and he's a public menace, maybe you've performed a public service. So, to, to me, they, and, and there's a lot of talk among lynching scholars about how this definition is far from airtight, and that, that's absolutely right. And I, I think, and then there's also the added factor that, that a number of people throw in that the act of lynching has to have broad public approval and support in the locale where it occurs. Well, how do you measure that? What level of public support? Uh, and I think in order to, to say that a particular act is a lynching, you have to try to enter the minds of the lynchers and to try to figure out what they thought they were doing. Is it strictly a private act, like Hatfield versus McCoy, is that kind of feud? Or is it, again, an act of public service? We got rid of a very dangerous public enemy. Uh, so uh, in many cases, we don't have much information at all. We just have a couple of lines in a newspaper report. Such and such a person was lynched by a, a mob of persons unknown. On such, That's all we know. Uh, and... Then in terms of the data, the the only uh, well, the first group that or organization that tried to collect data was the Chicago Tribune newspaper, starting for the year 1882. And there was never, by the way, any government agency at any level that collected aggregate data on lynching. Mm-hmm. So we start with the Chicago Tribune in eight, for 1882, and what the Tribune did was just to, to rely on reports reports from other newspapers that came to it. And so the Tribune just accepted the local newspaper's idea of whether an event was a lynching or not. And then Tuskegee's first institutes, Booker T. Washington's institute in Tuskegee, Alabama, now Tuskegee University, record keepers there took over uh, the, the project of keeping track of lynchings uh, and the ends. Uh, NAACP also moved into the mix. Uh, But by the way, there was no agreed-upon definition. That working definition was not even agreed upon by the major groups involved until a conference that occurred in 1940. And so there are many, many problems with the data that we do have, and there's a fair amount of, certain amount of argument about them. And I have heard ideas that we should expand the numbers I've heard the idea from a leading scholar that for every recorded lynching, there were three or four others that occurred. Uh, I do think there were many, many more uh, Mexican-Americans, as they were called, or just Mexicans, uh, who were lynched than, than were recorded in the data. But we're still reliant upon basically this Tuskegee data, which was based originally on uh, the Chicago Tribune records. But I... I I will say that look at the different inventories. There's one online now called Historical American Lynching, which anybody can look at, but it does not cover a number of the major states. In particular, it doesn't cover Texas, so it's a very incomplete inventory. But all of these attempts to count the number of lynchings agree on the trends. As I said before, there, there's a, 1892 is the worst year. So you have records of some sort from 1882 to 1892. They show a sharp rise, and then again, as I indicated, they show a sharp fall after 1892. So with some blips, some upward 
uh, short-term blips, like 1920, like the early 1930s and the Depression. So I think the most important thing is not to worry. I mean, everybody wants, wants to know exactly how many people were lynched. We're never going to know that. Uh, but I think most important is to follow the trends of lynching uh, and, and try to figure out why that sharp rise to 1892 and then the almost equally sharp fall after that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So that, that was actually one of the follow-up questions I had. Given the difficulties with the data, uh, how do we see what general patterns do we see? You've mentioned one of them, that there's a sharp rise from 82 to 90, 1882 to 1892, and then a kind of gradual, or depending on how you characterize it, fall with some blips. So that's across time. Uh, how does the data look when it's arrayed across space? Is there a lot of variation in the frequency and number of lynchings across states? There, there is, really. Uh, there, as, I, as I recall right now, there were more lynchings in Georgia in the year 1919 than there were in Virginia for all of the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, and I mentioned the, the uh, great difference, more than, more than twice as high, rate of lynchings more than twice as high per black person in Mississippi than in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia really, after 1900, uh, has about the same rate of lynching as Iowa hmm. or a state like or other states in the Midwest and so on. Um, I yes, there's there's great variation, and and also you see in in some areas that uh, governors who are in Virginia, in particular, governors who are dedicated to stopping lynching, are elected even in the 1890s, mm-hmm. uh, and you see uh, other figures uh, opposing lynching in a big way, and it's not it's, a lot of this is is I, I think dependent on personalities and personal leadership. Uh, there was, for example, a militia, uh, chief of militia in Alabama, Thomas Good Jones, who is credited with stopping lynchings as early as the 1880s, and then he becomes governor, uh, and he opposed lynching as governor. And uh, Alabama's figures are far lower than Georgia's, for example. Uh, and I, th- I think then, then there are also, there's, there's the impact of, of nearby oh, areas and thought, uh, the the rate of lynching is, is much lower, as I've said a couple of times, in Virginia than in much of the Deep South. Uh, so, uh, and I think that was pr- probably because there was more British influence in Virginia, and there's more Northern influence in Virginia than deeper in the South. Now, you you have some areas where the the variation is, I think even more surprising, let's say, that is in Louisiana, for example, uh, some cotton-producing areas have a much higher rate of lynching than other cotton-producing areas. And uh, francophone landowners, French-speaking landowners in Louisiana seem to uh, have had a much, oh, I don't know, better attitude and that were less likely to lynch or to, to have lynching incidents occur on their land than uh, Anglo-Protestant landowners. And then, by the way, the worst killing ground of all was North Florida. You know, there wasn't much of a population in South Florida f- uh, for a long, long time. Um, Miami Beach and so on were really not developed at all until the 1920s and afterward. Uh, but North Florida, the panhandle, 
Uh, if you've ever seen Porky's or movies like that, mm-hmm. uh, that's where they're set. And that that's still, well, redneck is not a nice term, but mm-hmm. it's classic southern rural and everybody's got a gun. And, and uh, it was absolutely agricultural and it was a cotton producing region. And that's that was the most lethal area of all. Mm-hmm. So there are these terrific regional differences some of which can be explained by, again, proximity to other influences. I think that does have an impact on Virginia. Uh, and some can be explained by personalities like Thomas Good Jones in Alabama. Uh, and it was, incidentally, it was, it was fairly common for white Southern newspapers to vehemently denounce lynching in other states. <laughs> if it happened in their state, yeah. oh, there was, you know, it might be bad, but it's understandable. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of this type of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So now we've talked about the um, way in which the data is uh, arrayed over time and space. I want to talk a little bit about demographics of the demographics of, of lynching. Um, and, and the first thing I want to ask is, uh, were women ever lynched? Yes, they were. Uh, both white and, and black women, many more black women than whites. I don't have that those figures uh, right off the top of my head right now. But most of the white women lynched were, uh, then there weren't that many, I would say less than 50, definitely. And they were lynched typically in the Western states and territories and often in connection with the cattle wars of the late 19th century, uh, which were also class wars, you know, for the most part, uh, associations of large uh, ranch owners against uh, small ranchers or, or outlaws, uh, as they were called in that situation. And then in, in the Deep South and in Oklahoma, there were cases of uh, black women lynched. Uh, sometimes they were accused of poisoning men, white men, or and, and in some cases they were the relatives of black men who were lynched. So we have a few cases of uh, a husband, a wife, and even in a, some instances... Uh, teenage children. I don't know of a case of a of a child lynched, mm-hmm. but uh, there are at least several dozen cases. I would say of black women lynched in the American South. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So, is it fair to say that most of the lynching was uh, white on black? That is simply in numerical terms. Yes, according to the the figures we have that I've mentioned that most people cite out of Tuskegee University, uh, almost three-quarters of the known victims were African-American, and I would say out of those, vast, vast majority were African-American men, so uh, it comes pretty close to to three-quarters. The aggregate totals from Tuskegee are 4,742 people lynched, uh, so roughly... Again, seventy-five percent of that would be black victims. Mm-hmm, black victims. So, uh, are all of those white on black? Uh, that is white oh, people. I, yes. I, thank you. <laughs> A number of those, several hundred, were black victims of black mobs. Mm-hmm. So, one point that I try to make in my book is that th- there seems to have been a, a period in which people in the South were somehow prone to lynch. Because if you, if you look at the curve of white-on-black lynchings, it 
rises fast, 1892 falls fast, as I've said. Then there's another curve which, which takes the same contours, but is at a much lower level, and that's black-on-black black lynchings. Uh, pretty much the same time frame, mm-hmm. the same rise and fall. And then, then, by the way, there are a grand total of four known incidents in which black mobs lynched white people mm-hmm. and, and got away with it in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, another uh, interesting thing that you point out is that uh, putting aside the uh, white-on-white, uh, black-on-white, white-on-black, and then black-on-black lynching, yeah. there were also other sorts of people who got lynched, and especially in the American West. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, again, one uh, aspect of that is is uh, the cattle wars. And so it was uh, fairly common, especially before states became, uh, before uh, territories became states, rather, uh, for uh, the, so the upper classes uh, to, to get together and lynch people they labeled as rustlers. Uh, so not, that's mostly white on, on white lynching, but also a fair number of cases in California of white mobs lynching uh, Chinese immigrants, um, again, uh, Anglos, as they're called in the Southwest, lynching Mexicans, as they were called, uh, uh, some cases of lynching of uh, American Indians by whites, but, but mostly they left that task to the army mm-hmm. so uh, yes that, that goes on and then in, in Minnesota for example there are a number of cases of not too many five or six of uh, either Irish mobs or, or Norwegian mobs mostly Norwegian Americans lynching Oh, for example a French Canadian who came to the area to work or a person of Finnish descent mm-hmm. who came to the area looking for work. Uh, so there are some some cases like that that, that kind of break the, the norm. Mm-hmm. So what we have here, if I could just summarize, is we have um, a primarily white-on-black phenomenon uh, that is uh, widely dispersed over uh, Space that is, it happens at different rates in different places, yep. and it's hard to explain exactly why, yes. at least given the social control thesis. And we see a, a definite pattern that is, it rises from 1882 to 1892, and then it falls off over the next several decades. Is that yep. a reasonable, yeah? Yes, yes, assuming that you accept the working definition yes. of lynching and assuming that you accept though the broad contours of the available inventories mm-hmm. differ in, in particulars, but again, not in their general outlines. Yeah, yeah. And just so that uh, listeners know, let's also agree that this is horrible. Just oh, completely horrible. My God. Uh, we, are, yeah. we are talking about this coldly, but it's truly a horrible thing. Yes, and yes. Every, every lynching was absolutely unjust. Yes. We talked <laughs> about people who were denied yes. their, their time in court, or once in a while there was what was called a legal lynching, where the person will be put on trial nominally, and the jury, the whole process may take half an hour, and then everybody goes out on the town square to lynch uh, the person, and it looks legal, but it is, it's qualified as a lynching. Mm-hmm, I see. So, it violates all real legal norms. So carefully bearing in mind that to explain is not to excuse, I will now ask you uh, to explain these patterns. That is, the, 
uh, that is the, the well, let's start with this. Why generally did people uh, lynch? I, I, I think here, by the way, it's really important to look at lynching on a global scale. And I think what, what happened in the American South, and then I'll speak just for a moment about some other areas, I think what happened was that after the Civil War, and this is, this is not news, uh, white Southerners felt that their whole world had been turned upside down, that uh, the, the field hands and, and the despised race uh, all of a sudden was freed and, and free to roam around and wander around. And, and, and not only that, and here I'm not trying to excuse anything, white Southerners realized that in many cases their wealth had disappeared either because their farms were destroyed or because wealth that they had held in the form of human beings, that was gone too. And gender relations changed really radically uh, during the Civil War because it was women who had to stay at home, take care of the farms, run businesses, uh, and somehow try to cope while their men were off fighting. Uh, So after the Civil War, Everything seemed to be in flux, including race relations, and there are many um, pieces of testimony to this effect. So what had happened, I think, in general was that the previous legitimacy, and I'm not calling it good legitimacy, I'm just saying political legitimacy that was there in the form of uh, white people will be free, black people will be slaves, even though that wasn't always case, that legitimacy was gone, and the legitimacy that was <clears throat> somehow provided by the, the dominance of the planter aristocracy, that began to disappear as well. In a period when political legitimacy and or certainty disappear, then people tend to take the law into their own hands. This is what has happened, what still unfortunately is going on to some extent in Guatemala. Even when there's a terribly brutal and violent regime in power, uh, that provides a kind of stability, a very unfortunate kind, and predictability. So we could talk about the apartheid regime in South Africa in the same way, or Suharto's dictatorship in Indonesia. And then when those forms of government, and I, again I use the word legitimacy just in the sense that it's, it's there and it's stable, when that kind of legitimacy disappears, then people don't trust authorities at any level, and they take the law into their own hands. And this is what people will say. There have been many interviews uh, of mob participants in Guatemala, in Kenya, uh, in India, in Indonesia. And this is what they say repeatedly, and I don't see any reason to doubt their word. They say... We, we had no choice. We had to act now to deal with uh, desperate and extremely dangerous criminals within our midst. And we couldn't wait for the police. The police are of no help. Uh, and, and so it, in, these, in these situations, when the legitimacy has disappeared, uh, people often also, they, I, I think they tend to panic and they... they they take even minor threats uh, as, as things that have to be nipped in the bud. Uh, even sometimes in, in Mayan communities in Guatemala, people wearing the wrong kind of clothing or something like that, uh, sometimes stealing a chicken, 
they have been lynched for things like that by people exactly like themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's only when some sense of legitimacy is restored, as in elections finally in the 1990s in South Africa, Mandela comes to power, uh, things stabilize. In Indonesia, matters have stabilized quite a bit. Then you see the incidence of lynching go down quite a bit. So I, I think above all, it's this, this problem of uncertainty about who's in charge, where the authorities are, especially if they're located far away. And in some southern counties, you know, there's one sheriff and one deputy for a thousand square miles, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, and and you you can't be sure that uh, that legal help is going to come quickly. And, and and incidentally, this gets to another basic point that I think challenges the social control thesis, and that is that lynching in America or South Africa or Indonesia, or whatever, is usually been overwhelmingly a rural phenomenon, not an urban phenomenon. Sometimes in some very poor parts of Bolivian cities, for example, lynching has occurred. But those people also feel that the authorities don't care about them, are far away, and probably don't have much legitimacy. But in the American South and most other cases, these are rural events. So you have to ask why there wouldn't be a necessity for social control in the form of lynching in cities. And I think it has to do a lot with the idea that the police are mm-hmm. much closer, more readily available, and will respond more quickly in cities than in rural areas. And then mm-hmm. in rural areas, last point I'll add now, people are often in face-to-face communities. They deal with each other on the basis of, of long reputations and these create bonds among people uh, that then they they fear may be may be broken uh, by uh, or may be challenged by a serious crime. Uh, but I I think rather than than seeing lynching as an expression of uh, as as a means of social control, it grows out of a sense of an existing sense of community and solidarity among rural people. Above all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So can we say in general then that there was always some sort of, um, given this definition, some sort of uh, incident that sparked this, and the incident usually involves some uh, perceived transgression of the law uh, or some custom. That is a theft or uh, uh, some sort of slight or um, some sort of violence, something like this, that, that um, the, these mobs simply did not just pick people at random and kill them. No, I think that, that that that's correct. They did not pick people at random. There, and and that that, by the way, is a key difference between lynching and a pogrom. Mm-hmm. Pogrom is a general race riot. I prefer the word pogrom. It's a little bit broader. One of the few words in English that we get directly from Russian, by the way, as you know. Anyway, uh, a pogrom is a generalized attack by one social group, race, religion, whatever, against another distinct group, Russian Orthodox against Jews in Russia in 1903, something like that. We have pogroms and race riots in this country, but I think, again, in lynching, the mob goes after particular targets that, as you said, have transgressed, and usually not in some casual sense. There are only a relatively few uh, cases in which we can say with any certainty, we think this was a 
lynching for trivial causes, like looking the wrong way at a white girl or something like that. Mm -hmm. But overwhelmingly, in, and this is in the case studies, there's some, there's some very serious crime that has been committed. Now, again, I'm not saying by the black person who was lynched, uh, but just, for example, in, in uh, Paris, Texas, 1890s, I think 1893, a four-year-old white girl was found murdered, and the allegation was also that she had been raped. Well, this is a, a highly disgusting crime, a heinous crime, and it was blamed very quickly on a black man, and he was tortured and put to death. So one thing I want to emphasize, too, and this, this also, in my opinion, challenges the social control theory, and that is mobs generally tried to tailor the kind of punishment they inflicted to the perceived crime. So this man in Paris, Texas, was tortured by relatives of the little girl, uh, but by the time you get to most cases of lynching, uh, they're, they're, they don't involve mutilation of the body. Castration is rare. Torture is relatively rare. Uh, I, I, I'm not trying to Again, whitewash anything, even uh, lynching at the end of a rope was often a, a long uh, amateurish project, of course, and it, it took people at the end of a rope often 20 or 30 minutes to strangle to death. Mm -hmm. so not necessarily a quick and clean death, but it, it wasn't viewed, I don't think, as torture by the mob. Mm -hmm. So it, the phrase popular justice, I think, unfortunately, is correct, popular or rough justice, rough justice yeah. the mob perceives itself as carrying out justice mm -hmm. against a, a, a dire threat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, now to the kind of second big question, uh, and that is, uh, what explains this particular uh, chronological pattern that is up to 1892 and then down into the 20th century? Okay. I would cite two basic factors there. One I think we can we can discuss in more concrete terms than the other. The first is that it's it's exactly in this period that the Jim Crow system is put into law. The, the first laws that look like Jim Crow are really uh, early 1890s in this country, and they have to do with public transportation. and And then it's it's this is a long process, and it's not until the early 20th century that African-Americans are completely deprived of the franchise in places like Virginia and Georgia, and many across the South, really. And I think what that did, it, it's obviously terribly unfortunate for the black population, but it also provided a kind of a new, at least on the surface, stability and legitimacy for the white population. And I, I would like to say that, in, in my opinion, uh, white supremacy was uh, typically much more about holding white people together than it was about keeping black people down. Mm. Uh, and as I said, there, the place of African Americans expanded in many ways, and that was fine with even a lot of really uh, terribly racist white leaders. So, so what Jim Crow did was to provide, again, unfortunately, a new kind of stability to the political system of the South. People knew or thought they knew where they stood, literally, or where they had to wait in line, ride on a railroad car. 
the second big change, I think, in this period, and I, I devote a chapter to this, is that there was a, a very serious discussion about what race and civilization and sexuality meant uh, around the world, particularly in fiction. And uh, there, there are many, many works in this period, starting about 1885 with Ryder Haggard, King Solomon's Mines. These are adventure, romantic tales and so on. And you could think of Tarzan and uh, Kim in India, uh, Rudyard Kipling's Kim and things. But what, what these books do, uh, even, even though we can certainly charge the authors with racism, uh, Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad is the most serious example of this kind of literature. Still, these authors begin to discuss uh, race in a different way than had been the case earlier. That is, you, you could generally find uh, up into the 1880s the idea that race was absolutely biological. It's locked into the brains and bodies of black people that they will be inferior. So how can they ever improve, or why should they, their status ever be lifted? The argument then in much of this literature from the 1880s, and it's picked up by politicians and publicists and so on, the argument in, this, in the romantic fiction is much more, well, uh, the level at which a race is found, and this is in Freud too, by the way, depends on how long that race has been in the school of civilization. Mm -hmm. So, and the great, the great case that's pointed to repeatedly on this score is the Japanese. And the idea in 1870, the Japanese were primitive and backward, and all, all Japanese women could be prostitutes and then still get married, and nobody really cared, and you know how savage that was. And then by 1904, 1905, they defeat the Russians in war, and oh my God, they're a civilized people. <laughs> and then look at the progress they've made in 30, 35 years. Uh, which did not, by the way, end heavy discrimination against the Japanese in, in the United States and in Australia, for example. But it did, you might say, improve their general status, and it gave rise to a whole new set of ideas about what race actually meant. Now, the old attitudes continue. There's, there's a struggle between them. Uh, but... Uh, and, and, and then finally, the image of women begins to change radically in that period as well. Women become much more assertive. Of course, by 1920, they have the vote in Britain and the United States. They get the new bicycle. They're literally riding around mm -hmm. independently. And so the old image, especially in the South, of the helpless, delicate white woman on a pedestal who had to be protected by her white men from the evil black rapist, <clears throat> that image is greatly weakened. And then finally, the, the improvements that I've mentioned in <clears throat> education and property ownership among African Americans. You just, white people just could not look at a black physician or professor the way they looked at a black illiterate field hand. Mm -hmm. And so all these factors, we, we need to find, Marshall, it, it, it's difficult, we need to find some very broad kind of explanation for this decline because it does occur across the United States despite these regional differences mm -hmm. and so on. We need to look for some broader, I would argue, cultural factors at work in the decline of lynching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that you found many of them and I, I imagine that uh, they're being discussed right now around uh, seminar rooms in the United States. Let me ask a final question before we 
close. Um, the book's not been out that long, I guess. How, how's it been received? Well, uh, I've only, <laughs> I must say, I, I Google every once in a while to see if there are any reviews out there. Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, okay right. And, uh, and I've only found a couple of comments about it yet, which were more or less on the positive side, although they point to the, the possibility that, that the book will offend many African Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was at a conference a year ago in Germany on lynching and, and ran into a, a lot of opposition. I think that, I think that there's a perception out there that, that if, you, if anyone does not say lynching was a system of social and racial control, that somehow that person is trying to whitewash mm-hmm. all of lynching and, and deny the horror of what happened. And so I got at this conference in Heidelberg, Germany, very quickly. I don't think it had been going on for more than an hour when someone said to me, uh, you're trying to whitewash lynching. And I mm-hmm. said, wait a minute. You know, yeah. I'm not trying to say that it was less in number or, or horror, but but I am trying to say that uh, that it changed radically. And also another, another part of my book that I personally think is quite important is I found some evidence at least – directly from African-Americans during the heyday of lynching about how they reacted to it. And they, they say different things, of course, but they don't typically say, oh, we were scared to death by, by lynching. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they take lynching to be a, quite a local matter, and, and they, they say that, well, the mobs went after specific people. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't go after me, and they didn't try to intimidate the black community in general. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, I imagine that uh, you will um, have the opportunity to receive a lot of other responses, and I hope that this interview has helped dispel the notion that you in any way are trying to whitewash lynching, because quite quite the opposite is true. I mean, you're obviously contributing to a discourse on lynching and trying to help us all understand it, and as I say, I want to congratulate you for that. You've done what what I think is a terrific job. So we have a traditional final question on new books in history, and it is this. What are you working on now? Well, as I said before, I'm trying to do something <laughs> a little bit more relaxed, shall we say, and so I am now putting together uh, something on, on one of my, my own great personal interests, which is coffee around the world, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, this will be a big book of, uh, of articles by academics and, and people in the coffee business, mm-hmm. and it has interviews from people all the way from the level of pickers in the fields to exporters, importers, roasters, coffee shop owners, and so on. So I hope mm-hmm. it's going to be called Coffee, a Handbook. It should be out in 2012, and uh, it, I hope it'll be a basic reference book, but also uh, some will provide some enlightenment about all the terrific factors that are involved in the coffee mm-hmm. business, including and historical. I was going to say, if there's any uh, anybody in uh, PR or marketing at Starbucks, uh, it sounds like one of those books that you see on the shelf before you over, o- order your soy latte, which is which is what I drink now because I can't drink milk yeah. anymore. Yeah, so I hope it does. I hope it does appear there. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm kind of concerned that Starbucks might not like it that much, <laughs> but, uh, but if they'll sell it, yeah, it's fine. Right. Well, uh, Bob Thurston, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. The book is Lynching, American Mob Murder in Global Perspective. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you very much, Marshall. Please. Sure. No, right, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Bob Thurston, author of Lynching, 
American Mob Murdering Global Perspective. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.